All right, we talked about a very controversial subject last week. What was it? Slavery. Why is slavery controversial? Because of the slave trade in the world? In America. Specifically in the United States, right? It was based on uh, man-stealing, right? Um, And the ownership, literally the ownership of another man. Now, are either of those categories biblical categories? No, not at all. In fact, the Bible made the stipulation that you don't own the man or the woman, but you own the what? Labor. Now, there's exceptions a little bit to that kind of a premise. And we talked about that. I can't remember who asked that last time. I think John brought up the question from Leviticus 17. Was it John? And just so you guys can start to kind of have this category fleshed out as well, you know how we have categories for prisoners of war, right? Okay, so does the Bible. The Bible has categories for prisoners of war, okay? Now, you're still required to treat those prisoners of war well and with a, with a certain degree of care, but that's a different thing than somebody who is presenting themselves uh, to, for the payment of a debt, their work for a payment of a debt. Do y'all, do y'all see the difference? There's prisoners of war, um, which would be the conquered peoples, right? Y'all following with me? Prisoners of war, which would be like the conquered peoples. That's, that's a different category um, than the idea of um, man-stealing um, and then the idea of biblical servanthood. So do y'all see how that's three different categories? Bip, bip, bip. Yeah? Well, for the example that John pointed out last week in Leviticus 17, it was God saying, do this, right? So we got that super clear. We're not saying, go start a war and then get yourself some slaves. Like, that's not the, that's not the application of that. You know, go start a war so you can have the excuse to man steal. That's not good. Um, but whenever God says, do this, like he did in Leviticus, then you say, yes, sir. Um, that was the big category of God's judgment being poured out on the Canaanites too, right? Like God said, these people are wicked, wipe them out, right? But that's not an order for us to make war on every, unwicked, every wicked nation in the world. Do y'all see that? That's not a, God telling Israel to destroy the Canaanites was God ruling theocratically, Okay, God rule, theocracy, God rule. Um, He was ruling theocratically through Israel and saying, you do this thing, you fight this way, Um, execute this particular degree of justice on my behalf. That is not an order for us to say, ah, look, a wicked nation, let's go conquer them. Um, Does that make sense? Okay, do y'all have questions about that? Okay, great. Um, Go to Psalm 119. And let's read verse 99 and 100 together. Psalm 119, verses 99 and 100. And before we kind of get rolling into our new stuff today, I just kind of want to help plant this seed into your brain so that you have this. Okay, Psalm 119, verses 99 and 100. Somebody read that. That's not Buddy Carrier. Um, Somebody read that nice and loud so everybody in the room can hear. Psalm 119, verses 99 through 100. Stephen, go ahead. Now, Stephen, you're all the way up here, and there are people in the mezzanine all the way back there. So they need to hear you say it too. Yeah, yeah. And orate, sir. Yes. Okay, go ahead. 
I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the age, for I keep your precepts. Amen. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. Here's the question. Why is David smarter than all the rest of the philosophers? Why is he smarter? Because he knows and meditates and keeps God's commandments. That's what Psalm 119 is saying right there. David has more brains than the smartest Ivy League graduate. David has more brains than the smartest philosopher simply because... He he says, I have more understanding than all my teachers, all of them, for your testimonies, whose testimonies? God's testimonies, God's words are his meditation. I understand more than the aged, more than the wise, more than the silver hairs in the room, because I keep your law. Big deal stuff. We need to remember that God's law, God's commands, God's words are our path to understanding. Okay, that's the way in which we go. And if you study, meditate, dwell on, learn from God's words, then you know more than the world around you. Now, here's the deal. The secularists will show up with 75 different letters behind their name and say, oh, but I have a PhD in underwater basket weaving, so I'm very smart, right? Or I have a law degree from the most secularized law school that exists in the world, and I'm very smart. You are smarter than them if that's true about you. If your meditations are on God's words, you know more, you have greater understanding. You, now that doesn't mean actually, that doesn't mean you sit down across from them and say, well actually I'm smarter than you, yes. You know, like, Cause maybe they know some books that you don't know. But the point is real smarts, real worth, real intelligence, real wisdom only comes from God's word. And what did Jesus say about his law? What did Jesus say about God's law in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, none of it goes away. Not a jot, not a tittle. Right? Now, don't draw that dispensationalist false dichotomy between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because what David is talking about in Psalm 119 is the laws of God. Okay? Your precepts, your commandments, your wisdom. Okay? What the temptation is for people in the Deep South is we say, yeah, but we in the New Covenant. So that Old Testament stuff doesn't matter. That's not true. That's not true. It all matters that Jesus himself declared, I have not come to abolish the law, but to do what? To fulfill it. And not a single bit of it will go away, were his words. Not a single bit. And so you don't say, ah, see, we're done here. Now that's also why we have this class. Because what we are trying to do is saying, well, in what way was it fulfilled? And in what way does it carry forward into our days? Right? Remember that? Now, somebody tell me the difference between a commandment and a statute. What's a commandment? Jesse? Commandment is a law standard to stick to. A statute standard that law. That's kind of right. You're close. There's two specific words that I'm looking for, though. You're close. The commandment gives what? The overarching principle, right? The commandment gives the overarching principle. And the statute gives the application of that principle. 
Um, another way to understand it would be the, the case law. Oh, jacket's coming off. Okay, so, right? The case law, the way that it works out, the way that the commandments are actually applied. Now, that's why we have to look back and think about how to apply these things properly. Now, let's think uh, about Paul. Remember Paul talking about don't muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain? That's an Old Testament application case law statute, right? And what was the point of it in the Old Testament? Don't muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. What was the point of it in the Old Testament? The ox is working, let him eat some of the fruit. If the ox is doing the work, let him eat some of the fruit. Exactly. Like he he don't muzzle him. Like let him let him have a snack. That's just a kind master. Now Paul used that case law to explain what to the people. Paul's like, yo, y'all got to pay me something, (laughs) right? The principle is don't muzzle the ox while I'm treading out the grain. And Paul's like, yo, I'm the ox (laughs) and I'm over here pouring my life out for you guys. You should, you should pay me something. You got to take care of me. Don't, don't just sit over here and be like, well, Paul, we're trying to keep you humble. You know, no, you gotta, you gotta take care of him. You gotta pay him. You gotta, you gotta do something with him. So that's the general idea. We see what, that's what we're trying to do with all of the Old Testament case law. We're trying to, well, not all of it because we would be here for six months, but you know, a, a decent amount of it. All right. Now in um, Exodus, if you want to flip to Exodus 21, you can. In Exodus, what's the context of Exodus? What's, what's happening in Exodus? Uh, you say what? The exile, yes, very good. But the exile from what? Egypt and slavery. There we go, that's right, yeah. They're moving, so Exodus is really a big story of actually Israel moving out of slavery and into freedom, okay? It's kind of their, their story of the transformation of who they are, their transition, except not that way, okay? You got it? Like, they're, we're moving into a new phase of life. Um, and it's honestly, there's a lot of different imagery and pictures that you can get from it, but they're, they're really moving out from slavery to Pharaoh, which is the evil type of slavery, into slavery to who? Not, not necessarily themselves, but although they do kind of destroy themselves there at the end. But Exodus is more the story of them transitioning from slavery from Pharaoh to slavery to God, right? Slavery to Yahweh. Um, because he's saying, this is how you can live a free life. Do this, and you will live fruitfully and long in the land. Don't do this, and you will, you know, judged and be destroyed and all those things. It's a, it's a really wonderful picture. But Exodus chapter 21, if you go to the very beginning, it says this. <clears throat> now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. Now... Um, when we already got all the context placed out last week, but let's just do a quick review of some of the qualifiers. We're not talking about man stealing or ownership of a human. That is not prescribed. Okay. That's not the deal. That's wicked. What we're actually talking about is the ownership of a person's what? Of their work, right? Now, what are some examples of that still existing today? How, how is your work owned by other people today? Uh, Employee-employer relationships? Did somebody say taxes? <laughs> that's true. Uh, that's, a, that's the bad version of it. But yeah, no, that's true. In fact, um, let's just do a thought experiment here. What happens if you don't pay your property taxes? They take your land. 
They take your home and your land. Pop quiz, do you really own your home or your land? No. <laughs> if you don't pay the taxes, they take it from you, which means ultimately they don't think it's yours. They think it's theirs. Do you see the logical conclusion there? You're renting it. You're renting it for a cheap price, quote, quote, but you're renting it nonetheless. Um, so see how that's wicked? That's evil. Like you're not allowed to own. Whereas God said, this is your land. This is your family's land. And every seven years, if you continue to read that passage in Exodus, you'll see every seven years, all the land passes back to the people to whom it belongs. It's actually theirs. It's literally theirs. And the only one that can take it away from them is the one who actually does own everything, which is who? And the parameters that he gives them for him to take it away is if they disobey him and are cursed. Y'all follow? Okay. All right, great. <clears throat> so the context is important for us to remember there. Um, slavery, we need to understand, is we're not talking about man-stealing. We're talking about owning of the, of the labor of a person. There's lots of examples. What about just general debt? General debt is a type of owning a person's labor, right? You owe me $500, so pay me $500, which means you go work to earn $500 and pay me back the $500 that you own. In the context of the Old Testament, the way that it worked was if you became so far in debt or you had such a bad season on the farm or whatever, you could sell your labor to a master um, for the payment of that debt, and then they were required then to do what? They took care of you, right? Like that, You now came under their household, for however long was left before the year of Jubilee. And they owned your labor for that period of time until the year of Jubilee was done or until the debt was paid off. And then eventually you were free. Now preparation. We're going to get into some of the really tricky stuff today in Exodus 21. Talking about wives, talking about children, talking about all the, the questionable the things you read and you're like, that's in the Bible? And I'm, my goal today is to kind of help us understand what's actually being instructed by these passages. And I think you'll realize after we get through today that this is actually a wonderful system and it's built to protect people. Okay. This is, this is the original. Well, I, I won't even say that yet. Let's just kind of keep going through it. Okay. Um, we talked about this already, but we're not talking about um, prisoners of war qualifications for prisoners of war. We're not talking about for captives during the time of warfare. Um, we're not talking about the categories of war criminals. Uh, we're not talking about any of that. We're talking about a very set idea in biblical servanthood. Quick review on a general application principle. Are you ready? Should you talk about this with anyone for the next six months? No. Unless you want to start a fight club. That's right. If you go bring up the idea, actually, here's what the Bible says about slavery. No one's going to hear anything that you say for the next hour and a half. All they're going to hear is, this guy's a racist. They're not even going to be able to function. Okay. So just, I wouldn't even bring this up. I would just stew on it. Let us go forward. Instead, what's the terminology that we, refer, we should refer to this system as? Servitude. Servitude would be one. Bond servants would be a good one. Um, indentured servant would be a good terminology. And I'm going to give you one more at the end of the class today that I think is really going to help you play out very well. <clears throat> so, but let's get through this first principle here. So Exodus 21, right out of the bat, we see they will serve you six years and in the seventh year, what? What happens in the seventh year? They're free. 
Deuteronomy 15 expands on this a little bit more. And at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner, you may exact it, but whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. And if you keep skipping down in Deuteronomy 15, verse 7 says this, if among you one of your brothers, pay attention. Are y'all listening? This is Deuteronomy 15, verse 7. Pay attention. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. Now hold on a second. In the same section, okay, now y'all got to pay attention because this is important. In the same section, don't pay attention to the, to the weird headings that some translations insert into the Bible passages that tend to divide the sections. Ignore that. Listen closely. In the same section in which Deuteronomy talks about what, how you regard the servant, how you regard the, the slave, and, and how you forgive them of your debt. In just a few verses later, it says, if anyone becomes poor, okay, don't shut your hand to them. Why do you think that is? It's because, and I'm going to talk about this for the rest of this class, it's because this was how they took care of the poor. Okay? Biblical service, biblical servanthood was the Old Testament social security. It was the way that they made sure that there were not people starving to death. It said, don't you dare close your home to them. You let them in, they become yours, they're with you. It does not mean here's all the free handouts Okay, and it doesn't. It definitely doesn't mean what our state has done, which is here's all the free handouts, and you may not work. That's wicked. Okay, that's that's slavery to the max. We're going to give you everything you need to live on, but you may not work. And the moment that you work, you lose all of the support. I can't tell you how many people I've counseled through those situations and seasons. And they go to church with you, okay? Through those situations and seasons where they've been on these types of assistance, and the moment that they come off of them, even though they're making more money, they're actually poorer now. It, it, is, it is designed to keep you in bondage to your master, which is the state, because the state is God. The state was never supposed to carry the burden of welfare. Never. This is God's design for social security. This is God's design for the care of the poor. You bring them in, you don't, don't you dare shut your hand to them. You bring them in, you provide for them, you care for them, and they become your servants. And they're cared for, and they have good, fruitful work to do. Biblical servanthood was always intended to be a social security program. You broke? You can move in with somebody and they'll take care of you and they will provide for your needs. Now they're going to own your labor. Do you get what I'm saying? They're going to own your labor and you're, you're going to have to pay them while you're with them, but they're going to make sure that, that you got the medicine that you need. They're going to make sure that you've got the resources that you need. They're going to make sure that you have a roof over your head. They're going to make sure that anybody else that's a part of your household has the things that they need. Do you see what I'm saying? This is why if you go all the way back to Abraham, How many men, do y'all remember how many men Abraham had with him? Hundreds of men. Do you know what that meant? 
They were his, and he was caring for them. They all had lanes and work to do inside of the household, but it was Abraham's household. And he had all these men and their household, so really he probably had thousands of people. Abraham was like a little mobile town, right, that just kind of traveled around and took care of sheep and lived life. But, and he made sure that they were provided for. It was this huge social security system that was designed by God that he put together in order to pursue. And so if you're broke, you can move in with somebody, they'll take care of you, they'll give you productive work to do, and while you're there, you might even learn a trade. So that when the year of Jubilee comes, and you can go out and be free, you're now out with more skills than you went in with. See, we do that too, except we do it through what? Through, what's that again? Through the prisons? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's, that's very true. Well, and I was actually going to talk about the other kind of prison system, which is our secularized university system. You know, like you, you go in and you, the, don't worry guys, you just apply to Sally May through this FAFSA application and we'll give you all the money you could ever want. We're going to give you your food. We're going to give you a roof over your head. We're not going to hold you to any moral standard except don't, don't te- cheat on your exam. But anything outside of that, you can do whatever you want. And then when you graduate, you'll leave with some skills and then you can start paying us back. We still have this system. You see it? You still have that system today. It's just now the master is the state. Right? Does everybody see that? We haven't left this. We've just moved to a a more farther removed master. We still have masters. Okay, do you all have questions about this? It's It's a master who doesn't know you. Yeah, that's right. It's a master without a face. And it's a master that you don't know. You are a cog in a system governed by paperwork and wicked people that are godless. Yes, 100%. I would prefer a godly master. Do you know what I'm saying? That's what I would prefer. Um, what do, we say things like, if you're broke, the government will cut you a check provided you promise not to ever do any productive work again. That's terrible. Which one of those two things is actually slavery? Obviously the second one. Obviously the second one. All right. Deuteronomy 15, verse 11, if you just keep rolling through Deuteronomy 15. Why do you need this type of a program? For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Remember, even Jesus confirms this. He said what? The poor will always be among you. He's quoting Deuteronomy 15. There will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. But the Bible also says, that if you obey, there will not be any poor where? Among you. There will always be poor, right? Out there in the land. You get see what I'm saying? But among you, if you obey, if you follow what the Lord says, there won't be any. Do you see the difference? Okay, good. Good, good, good. All right. Um, and setting the captives free was also a major part of the gospel. It was a gospel picture. Okay, they came in, they entered into bond service, and then eventually they were free, they were set free. That's a picture of, of what the Lord has done for us. I don't have time to go through all of that right now, but we'll just keep rolling. Uh, <clears throat> all right. Now let's do the hard stuff. Go back to Exodus 21, and we tick through verses 1 and 2 already. Let's do verse 3. It says, If he comes in single... Y'all know the passage I'm to already, don't you? Some of y'all do. They've been reading your Bible for a while. This is one of those difficult ones. Let's talk through it. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, 
then his wife shall go out with him. But then look at verse four. But if his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be what? Her master's and he shall go out alone. Now that just sounds like a Hallmark Disney movie script right there to make you hate the master, doesn't it? It really does. <gasps> it's tearing this family apart. Yep, amen, buddy. But listen, here's the deal. Um, if it's a married man and he falls into debt and he goes in with his bride, then he comes out in the year of Jubilee, once his debt's paid off, also with his bride. He already, okay. This is where we have to get another, a whole new concept nuked into our brains to be able to get what's going on right here. Um, raise your hands if you've ever heard of the concept of a bride price before. Okay, good. There's a decent amount of us that have talked about this before. Okay, good. Um, if you haven't heard it from me, there's a chance that you've got the wrong definition rattling in your brain. So listen to me very closely. So indentured servanthood is a type of social security. We've already talked through that. The, the biblical form of slavery is a type of social security for those who are in trouble, who need some type of relief. And they're brought into another family member's household for that person to care for them, right? It's a good system. It's a just system that cares for the poor and also gives the poor productive work to do and potentially even teaches them skills so that one day they will be released. They will be released and sent out to go serve the Lord. Okay, sent out to expand and build and move forward from there. All right. And there's even stipulation in the Old Testament law that says, and don't you dare try to shift their wages based on how close to the year of Jubilee you are. You pay them true. You pay them fairly. Okay. The concept of a bride price works the same way. Now, when we think of a bride price, because we think um, Disney movies right away and, and bad guys, and weird um, Middle East, mostly um, governed by Sharia law situations, we think that women are bought and sold. That's not what the bride price was, okay? The bride price was a system that was set up to actually protect the woman, okay? So here, here's what would happen. The, the young man who desires to marry someone, he has to pay for the right to be able to marry her. Who does he pay? He pays the dad of the girl, right? He pays the father of the daughter. Now, what does the father do with that money? See, this, this is, that's bingo. The father, the father now has increased wealth so that if something goes sideways with this man, that young woman can come home and she's taken care of. That's the whole design of a bride price. It's also a young man proving himself so that he can care for this young woman. That's also a huge part of it. Now, we sort of do that today, but we do it in the form of engagement rings, right? And we, we buy big, expensive rings, but we don't necessarily give it to the father. Who do we give it to? We give it to the bride because we're an individualistic society that's in rebellion against the parents, and we don't believe that parents, as the movie Father of the Bride has played out, we don't believe that parents actually have the best interest of their uh, young virgin daughters. Um, they think, we think that parents are just trying to suppress and restrain our children, and we're wicked and bad. Um, but a father wants to care for his daughter, 
And this is one of the mechanisms through, that, through which that was done. That's the design of a bride price. A bride price is money that is paid to the father to increase the wealth of the father's household so that if something goes sideways with this wedding, he has a nest egg for, this, for his daughter to live off for the rest of her life. It's not a surprise, in other words. Do you all see, do you see how this system works out? Yeah, it's just in case money is what it is. And it also proves that the young man is serious. And it also proves that the young man has earning power and a skill, right? Um, think about the story of Jacob and Leah and Rachel and Laban, right? What was, what was the dowry that Jacob paid to be able to have Rachel? Seven years. Well, and then Laban, the whole point of Jacob and, and Laban is actually that Jacob's tricks are getting flipped back on him. Do you all recognize that that's the point? You know, Jacob the trickster meets Laban the trickster. Oh, whoops, wrong daughter. <laughs> you got the cross-eyed one. Okay, we'll send the other one in later, you know, like, or whatever the case was. So he had to pay seven years per daughter. That's the bride price. Do you get it? That's the dowry. And the design of that is that it would increase the father's stature, Laban's stature, his resources, his wealth over the course of years, so that if something went sideways with his daughter and Jacob, she could come home and be provided for. Okay, that's the whole point. That's the whole point of the system. Understanding all of that, that's why if the master gave you a wife, you couldn't leave with her. Do you see? Because that servant has not proven that he can take care of her. But the master of the house has. You see? You see? We read that and we're like, true love is being torn apart because we're reading it through a Disney lens, Okay. But if you come to our Wednesday night studies, you know men are made to protect women. We talked about this for like an hour this past time. Well, 45 minutes. But the idea is that a a man, a father, protects his daughters and then eventually hands off his daughters to the man. The, The man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, hands off his daughter to a suitor that's proven himself worthy. To do what? To continue protecting his daughter. Y'all see? And so that's another safety net that the bride price had. So whenever, I'm going to get you, buddy. I saw your hand up. Um, Whenever it says that he can't take his wife and kids with him, what's really happening is the master is saying, look, you can, they can go as soon as you offer some type of guarantee here, right? As soon as you set yourself up to Either you, you know, go work a little bit and pay some serious bank or you indenture yourself to me for five more years and we count that as the fee or, or whatever. But you need to prove to me that you're going to take care of this woman and these children. Otherwise, I'm not going to deviate on my responsibility to care for them. Do you see? That's what's really going on here. Buddy? It was also incentive for the young men to, to stick their nose to the grinding stone for that seven years that they were indebted to really get their work in because everybody knows that if a young man starts dating and courting, that sucks up a lot of time and energy. And money. <laughs> and money. That's right. I have, a, I have, you know, I have some young men that work for me. Um, and, uh, we are talking about this on almost uh, every other day basis right now. Like one of, one of them was like, yeah, I took my, I took my girlfriend on a date and it was a real nice date. And I was like, are you broke now? And they were like, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, that's, I mean, that's, I get it. You know, you want, you want to treat your lady, but you got a lot more things to pay for coming up, buddy. Landon? Yeah. Is that not potentially conflict with the understanding of the 
essentially taking that household back? Yeah, so uh, there is a larger household governing the whole situation, which is the master's house, right? And it's the same principle as like, um, just wait, we're going to get into some stuff here in just a minute. If we keep going through Exodus 21, that you're going to be like, it's going to break your brain. But what I'm trying to get everybody to see is the way that the larger households actually functioned more like a, uh, like a, like a little town almost. And the little households, yes, were represented within them, but they were still primarily the responsible, responsibility of the master. Okay, the responsibility of the of the ultimate head of household, and even those women and those children, he was saying, these, they're mine in the sense that I'm responsible. Like I, I we ain't we ain't playing no games, you know. That's right. It's not it's not ownership. It's protection. Do you get what I'm saying? Like we've got to get that, we've got to we've got to get that piece into our heads all the way. That when God's designing this system, He's designing it to be social security. He's designing it to protect and, and preserve. Any other questions? Okay, great. Um, so, <clears throat> now, the world that we live in today, being that, it's, being that it's a God-hating world, they deny the fact that women need to be protected, right? They, in fact, say, no, the earth is flat, Women don't need your protection. How dare you hold the door open for these women? You offensive jerk face, right? I mean, that's kind of, if you go into like godless parts of the country and you go try to hold the door for a woman, very often they will not even walk through it. I don't need you to do that for me. Um, but what we still have, what we still are holding onto here in the deep south is this general truth that men and women are different. Amen. And that men are stronger than women. Amen. And chivalry, like holding the door open or carrying a, a young woman's books to class for her or whatever, is a demonstration that we recognize that men and women are different. And men's strength is for the protection and benefit of the women because women are weaker vessels. Facts, 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 facts. And that's why the idea of men and women competing in open sports against one another on a level playing field is the dumbest thing on the face of the planet. And if you don't believe me, just go to YouTube and Google or whatever and search for um, trans rugby player. And it will be terrifying for you to watch. It's a man dressed like a woman playing rugby against women. And you already know what happens. Like it's, it's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. And this is the way that we live. So <clears throat> men marry women under the authority of the master. And that's still true today, right? Men marry women under the authority of the master. Who's the master? Yeah, well, dad. Dad is, yeah, that's true. But the, she's, she's becoming a part of a new household. Ultimately, the master is the father in heaven, right? Is God himself. All right. We got time? No, but we're doing it anyway. Here we go. Verse 7. Verse 7. We're going to start blowing through these because this is important. Verse 7, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. Now, that, ugh, daughter sells, a man sells his daughter as a slave? Ah, like, that Disney filter kicks in and we're losing what's going on. Obviously, the first thing that we take away from this is this is a situation of very serious poverty. Like, he's thinking people in my household are going to die if we don't figure this out. And so what he's doing is he's offering his daughter as a potential um, as a potential person to marry or work in another master's house. That's really what he's doing. And the master of the other house says, 
I agree, you know, I'll pay whatever it is, you know, I'll pay this to you in order to make sure that this happens. And then we'll move forward from there. It's really a picture, it's another picture of the bridal price situation that you can kind of see playing out right there. Now, notice though, that at the end of the time, it says she's not just sent out as male slaves do, right? Now, why is that? She's got nobody to take care of her and she's a woman. She needs somebody to protect her. And dad, whatever happened with dad, he doesn't have the resources to be able to do it. And so she's kept protected safe by the master, even though she's free now, which means that she's functionally an employee. And now instead of being paid, she's, she's compensated probably to some degree um, over time after that. Now, <clears throat> look at verse eight. Now this is where things get real spicy. You ready? Now, if she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, so that means the master says, this is going to be my wife, okay? Okay, that's what he said. He said, this is going to be my wife. He's designated her for himself. But she, for some reason, the master changes his mind after he's already sent the money, after he's already paid the gig. Maybe they come in and he realizes, oh, you're kind of, you're kind of crazy. You know, like, uh-oh, this, this might not work out. We, we got to figure something else out here. Listen to what it says, though. He's designated her for himself. Then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to, give her to, a, to sell her to a foreign people, since it's he that has broken faith with her. You see, the deal was she comes in to be his wife, okay? And he changed his mind. But that doesn't change the terms of the deal. He can't just be like, well, I got to make up my losses here. Who wants this woman? That's not how it works. She's now counted as redeemed, like paid in full. In other words, the deal is done. You decided you didn't want to marry this woman. Fine. And you're, you're done here, you know, but you have to still take care of her as though she was your wife. See, watch. Look at verse nine. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as though she were his daughter, as with a daughter. That's what that passage means there in verse nine, which means that now she's a part of the household. So like, he's like, oh, it's not going to work out, but I got a boy. Maybe you'll work out for him. Okay, y'all do that thing. But she's still fully redeemed. Do you see what I'm saying? She's still fully redeemed. And now that's his kid. So it's even more a part of the household as it was before. But then look at verse 10. If he chooses, if he chooses, so he's like, hey, it's not going to work out with me and you. If he takes another wife to himself, this is verse 10, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. Now, whenever you read marital rights, what do you read into it? Yeah, you know what you read into it. That's not it, <laughs> okay? It's talking about her rights as a spouse. So he chose to not marry her, and now she's a spinster, but she lives in his house, and he takes care of her as though she were his spouse. As what? As protection and care for her. So she's not alone. See what I'm talking about, buddy? Marital rights also give, give her a son that can take care, care of her one day. Well, I don't think we're talking about sex. I don't think we're talking about sex Sorry, there's really little kids. I don't think we're talking about that. I think we're talking about the financial rights, the assets, the way in which they care for one another because he's taken another wife and God's already clearly set it up that it should be one man, one woman over and over and over again. Now, I'm sure there are some guys who are screwing that up in Israel, obviously, because we see them all the time. But I don't think that's what God's setting up here. <clears throat> all right, verse 11. And if he does not do these three things for her, what happens? She shall go out for... Nothing. She's free. 
She's totally done without payment of money. And if he doesn't do all the things, she's done. Debts are canceled and she can go back home to her father. The master has already paid the bride price to her father. And these are all provisions for ultimately what we would call, I think we could call easily, um, social security. Now, if you look at verses five and six, um, we'll flesh this out real quick. If the slave plainly says, I'm out of time. If the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door on the, or the doorpost. And his master shall bore through his ear with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. So the whole system, okay, the one that we deal with as though it's so icky because it has the word slave in it is actually a system of social security and it's actually a system to care for women as the weaker vessel. That's the whole design of it. That was what God was doing from the jump. And instead, what we've decided today is since the word slavery is so bad, we're not going to allow a system like this to exist anymore. Instead, we're just going to let the state do it. We're going to let the state enact the exact same systems. I think that if we could return to something like this, it would actually be better for people in the world because think about who, who do you want your master to be? Do you want your master to be MasterCard? Do you want your master to be Visa? Do you want it to be the federal government? Or do you want it to be a godly man that loves you and wants to take care of you and has your best interest at heart? That's it. Do you all have any questions before we're done? Jane? It was care for, yes, it was care for Ruth and Naomi. That's a good Because she knew, she knew that she was obeying the laws of God and the systems that God had in place so that they could be taken care of. Exactly. Yes. Any other questions? To care for other people? Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's almost impossible for the average Christian. I mean, yeah, there are wealthy people out there sure. who have success, but you don't get that kind of level of, I don't, I don't know. No, I get what you're saying. To, to be able to operate in that capacity, unless you do it in the form of a Christian business. So I... I, I get what you're saying, and I, would, I think that you're, you're tracking pretty close um, for certain things, but I would say also, um, there's, in the sense that there is wealth in prevalent today, like there's a few really wealthy people and mostly middle class folks related to that, I think that was probably the same circumstances that they were operating in too. So I would say find a way to be faithful with the opportunities that the Lord has given you insofar as you can be and see what he does. Because the promise is if you're faithful with little, he will give you, if you're faithful with you know, five talents, he'll give you five cities. So I would say um, let's trust the Lord and just try, right? Let's trust the Lord and just try and see what we could do, see how it could work. Now, the truth of the matter is that nobody here owns a town right now, you know, and so this full model couldn't work. But some of us have, um, I don't know, apartments or tiny houses or space to put something or 
sheds or do you see what I'm saying? Like we have opportunities and mechanisms to where we could create something to be able to help other people. We could, we could make something. I don't know exactly what, um, like, like garage apartments are a classic example. Basement apartments, of course, none of us have basements because, you know, it would flood. Uh, but tiny houses, the new revolution. Like, I think there are ways that we could experiment with this. We're not there yet, but maybe one day soon. I am so late. Um, okay, I love y'all. Let's pray, and then I'll see y'all at church. Jesus, thank you that you're good. Thank you that you give us opportunity to learn from your word. I pray that we would do so joyfully and faithfully. Let us be faithful with the things that you have given us so that you may bless us with more and we may grow your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.